of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode 7, August 2018, The Names We Love Best. Hi, this is Paul Meyer, with my latest podcast from Paul Meyer Dialect Services at paulmeyer.com, where you will find all the books, e-books, and services I offer for spoken word training and coaching, from stage dialects to Shakespeare to corporate communication and accent training for non-actors. I promised you a podcast this month asking this question. Why do most of our favorite names comprise two syllables with the stress on the first syllable? At least among those whose first language is English. Names like David, Helen, Marty, Susan, Isaac. In the jargon of poetic meter, this rhythm is called a trochee. T-R-O-C-H-E-E. Dumdy rather than its opposite, didum. The rhythm of names like Colette, Tremaine, Celeste, Gerard, Marie. Each of these is an iam, I-A-M-B, as in iambic pentameter. Is this a dagger that I see before me? Of course, naming conventions and preferences are hugely different language to language and culture to culture. Another podcast, perhaps? I might try to interview an onomastician, a scholar of onomastics. (laughs) I love these new words I found. They come from the Greek, onomastikos, of or belonging to naming. And then, even more specific to our topic today, there's anthroponomastics, all about people naming. In case you're thinking this all seems kind of nerdily narrow, syllables and stress patterns, but hang in there my reading took me to some very interesting places. Why do I find it interesting in the first place? Perhaps because our kids and our pets are about the only things we get to name anymore. Of course, I do have a favourite cousin in England who names her cars. Rosie, her treasured blue mini. Sweet. And lots of people in England name their houses too. Mont Repos, Erzen Mine. E-R-Z-A-N-M-Y-N-E. Hers and mine, get it? We always has a nice little cup of her and me at the bottom of the garden round about four o'clock. So, as there are so few things left for us to name, our kids, our pets, maybe our cars and houses, I thought there might be something to learn from the sounds and rhythms of the names we actually choose. So I looked up the most popular first names in the USA. I found some official statistics from the U.S. Social Security Administration. Over the last hundred years, they told me, Mary, by a huge margin, has been the most popular girl's name. And while three-syllable names like Patricia, Jennifer and Kimberly are close to the top, it's two-syllable names like Linda, Susan, Sarah, Karen, that lead overall. For boys, James and John, single syllables, are the top two choices. But the next seven, Robert, Michael, William, David, Richard, Joseph, Thomas, and the vast majority in the top 100 are trochees. 
two-syllable names with the stress on the first syllable. Not one single iambic name, like Simone or Girard, in the top 100. Though only five U.S. states return information that analyzes name popularity by race, I dug a little and found our preference for trochaic first names cuts right across race and ethnic lines, at least in the U.S. It's true for the African-American community, though Aaliyah and Alexandra were listed as the two most popular girls' names in the survey I looked at. David, Brandon, Caleb and Cameron were the top four boys' names. And I must mention the strong attraction among African-Americans for the Amphibrach, A-M-P-H-I-B-R-A-C-H, Amphibrach, a three-syllable name with the middle syllable stressed, Didumdi. As Professor Emeritus at the University of Kansas, home to the champion Jayhawks basketball team, I have to mention LeGerald Vick, our great shooting guard from Memphis, Tennessee. LeGerald, LaTanya, Germonia. I love the rhythm of three-syllable names like these. The Hispanic community loves trochies too. Latino parents really like Mateo for boy babies at the moment. Another amphibrach, didumdi. But they continue to frequently choose Samuel, Lucas, Izan, or Aizen, and Hugo, all with first-syllable stress. And Latina girls enjoy Bella, Emma, Lola, Carla, and Julia. A very quick search for popular first names for U.S. Muslims led me to suggestions by an Arab-American Muslim mother that she made to other Muslim moms and dads when looking for names for their kids. She was suggesting compromises, obviously, trying to avoid making the kids' lives too difficult. Her top suggestions were Adam, Ali, Anwar, Faris, Hani, and Idris. All trochees, too. So what's the power of trochaic names? Why are we so drawn to them, as my admittedly limited research suggests? I think it follows, at least in part, from the English language in general. The vast majority, perhaps 90% of two-syllable nouns, get first-syllable stress. Search online for two-syllable words, not just nouns, beginning with the letter B, for example. At a single glance you'll see that the vast majority are trochaic, dumdi. Verbs are the exception. Believe, become, behave, begin, etc. Start jumping out. Nouns borrowed from French, like champagne, garage, etc., are more likely to be given second-syllable stress by English speakers, Though when French natives speak such words in isolation, they too go trochaic. Paris, Antoine, Pierre. We Anglos must obviously think the iambic rhythm sexier or more sophisticated or something. We say Chanel, Dior, Cardin, not Chanel, Dior, Cardin. Is the trochee more down-to-earth, declarative, assertive somehow, less pretentious, less flowery or something, less open to argument. I'm Carlton. Don't mess with me. 
Although my parents named me Paul, a monosyllable, I have my dad's two-syllable name, Emile, as my middle name, and I am, which I thought très chic. It's funny, though, isn't it? The Even the word I am is actually a trochee. In my book, Voicing Shakespeare, I argue that trochaic verse is more combative than iambic, making it suitable for strong, aggressive, arresting ideas. Do you remember the pounding, drum-like rhythm of Longfellow's Hiawatha's childhood? Hiawatha's name, metrically, is a ditrochy, a double-trochy, dumdy, dumdy. By the shores of Gitchigumi, by the shining big sea water, stood the wigwam of Nokomis, daughter of the moon Nokomis. Philip Larkin's poem, The Explosion, uses the ominous trochaic rhythm to foreshadow a mine disaster. On the day of the explosion, shadows pointed towards the pit head. In the sun, the slag heap slept. Or, more naturally, on the day of the explosion, shadows pointed towards the pit head. In the sun, the slag heap slept. So, although they sometimes write great trochaic verse, like these examples, why have our English-speaking poets, the vast majority, preferred to express our trochaic language in iambic verse? And why, if we like the iam so much, some say it's the mother's heartbeat we listen to in utero for nine months, why do we give our kids trochaic names? It's a mystery. To me, and to many linguists too, it seems, some talk about a universal bias towards trochies. There's even something called the iambic trochaic law, which I can't wait to read up on. But other linguists have analysed the babble of English and French babies and found no bias at all. You find articles like debunking the trochaic bias myth in the scholarly journals. So the experts themselves disagree. It's clear that the majority of content words in English are trochaic. So it's easy to create a line of trochaic verse. Uncle Robert's just a mean old codger. That's the first trochaic line I came up with. Uncle Robert's just a mean old codger. It's got three two-syllable words, right? Uncle, Robert, and codger. All trochies. But... There's something about the way each foot, as it's called, each, each group of two syllables, has a falling rhythm that makes the verse line go to ground, so to speak, after each foot, giving it a certain dangerousness. We definitely take notice. Poets writing in iambic pentameter have a favourite trick if their first draft comes out trochaic. They just stick in an unstressed word at the top of the line. So adding the word my to the beginning of my made-up line, we get my Uncle Robert's just a mean old codger. De-dum, 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 de. -dum, de, -dum, de, -dum, de. <laughs> and dropping the so-called 
feminine ending that this creates, the extra 11th unstressed syllable, by replacing the two-syllable codger with the one-syllable man, we get my uncle Robert's just a mean old man. My uncle Robert's just a mean old man. Listen to the two different ten-syllable lines. The first one trochaic, the second iambic. And see if they give you two different feelings. Uncle Robert's just a mean old codger. Uncle Robert's just a mean old codger. Contrasted with, My Uncle Robert's just a mean old man. I was pushing the difference a little, I admit, to help you experience the two rhythms differently. But most metricists agree. The second meter, the iambic, creates a so-called rising rhythm. It looks up and forward, eager for what follows. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks, as Romeo says about Juliet on her balcony. It has an anticipatory feel. Just the rhythm does that. I've heard it said that although content words in English are more often than not trochaic, when they're coupled with single-syllable words like the, my, in, etc., in connected speech they combine to give English a naturally iambic rhythm. My 50 years' experience shows me that the iambic pentameter is a fabulous meter for capturing the rhythm of our language in a very natural way. Even that last sentence of mine I notice. My 50 years' experience shows me that the iambic pentameter is excellent at catching the rhythm of our language in a very natural way, has two completely iambic phrases that could actually be verse. Listen. My 50 years' experience shows me that and the rhythm of our language in a very natural way. Both strings of words are iambic pentameters. I'm a poet and didn't know it. Of course, when I speak the thought naturally, any effect the rhythm may have on you is completely subliminal, which great speech writers know. My 50 years' experience shows me that the iambic pentameter is excellent at catching the rhythm of our language in a very natural way. So, if you're still with me, here's my conclusion. It's, it's pretty simple. Despite our evident love of the iambic rhythm in poetry and for classy product names, and despite the fact that whole chunks of everyday prose are essentially iambic in rhythm, our preference for trochaic names comes from the troche's assertive, declarative, falling rhythm. It's as if the troche says to us, Finished. Done and dusted. End of story. If you were introducing some historical celebrities at an important event, you might do so completely unconsciously with an iambic phrase that's suddenly and dramatically inverted, disrupted by the trochies of their names. I'd like to introduce to you on stage tonight your own, your very own... 
William Shakespeare, Albert Einstein, Charlotte Bronte, Martin Luther. More naturally, I'd like to introduce to you on stage tonight your own, your very own, William Shakespeare, Albert Einstein, Charlotte Bronte, Martin Luther. You see how these trochaic names grab your attention? So that's my theory. We want names that are good for calling the kids in from play. Billy, Sally. Not so easy to do with Colette, Diane. Names that grab the spotlight when they collect their Oscar. And the Oscar goes to Ryan Gosling, Sandra Bullock, Trokey Trokey. Humans, like all creatures, are responsive almost unconsciously to rhythm. The rhythm of day and night. The rhythm of the tides on the shore. The rhythm that comes from walking on two legs. The rhythm of the seasons of the year. The rhythms of music can change our mood in an instant. So is it any wonder that the names we choose for our children are an unbidden response to our deep sense of rhythm? In closing, back to that most primal rhythm of all, the beat of our own hearts. I leave you with a question. Is the human heartbeat really iambic, as often claimed? What do you hear? Can you slip back and forth in your perception? Iambic to trochaic and back again? Like those pictures that can be seen two ways? Is it a vase or the silhouette of two people looking at each other? Which rhythm do you resonate to? Thanks for joining me, Paul Meyer. Please go to paulmeyer.com for more of my podcasts, my books on accents and dialects, free Shakespeare material, interactive IPA charts and voiceover information. Join me next time when we will have some fun with phonetics. Expect to hear some very strange noises from me next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>